I'm glad to see that everybody has made it through Bible school. I think barely by the looks of some of us here, but we we have made it, and I'm I'm glad that you made it out today. Um, you know, I'm I'm, I'm going to be in the book of Second uh, Kings today, so go ahead and be turned there. Second Kings chapter six. Now we're going to pick up in verse 24 in just a little bit. Second Kings chapter six and verse 24, and. Uh, it, it was interesting. I, I had prepared this, and then I uh, spoke last night at the at the Bible school uh, uh, program, and then uh, I looked over things again, and I realized there's quite a bit of overlap between what I said last night and the message today. That was not planned on my part, at least. I guess maybe I mean, it's one of those things that we just need to hear uh, a second time. But but you might remember last week we looked at Gehazi's greed. You remember that. Uh, that Naaman had had come to Elisha and, and didn't and Elisha wouldn't take any money, but Gehazi went and defrauded Naaman, took a bunch of money, and uh, and all those things. So he got struck with leprosy, and so we looked at that last week. And where we pick up today in chapter six is a little further down the road. And we don't know how far down the road it is. Probably a, a couple of years. Um, but but this past week, I've had two people actually ask me about this text. One of them was an adult, and one of them was a, one of our kids. And so I want to talk about it today, and, and I think to, to, to talk about it, I need to say a few words to set it up so we understand what's going on in the passage. Now, where we pick up in chapter 6, um, the Bible's going to say that Samaria is under siege. Now, you might know what uh, being under siege means, but you might not. Uh, a siege was a tactic that the armies used back then, back in the ancient Near East. We don't, don't really use these uh, tactics today. But what they would do is they would starve people out. That was one of their strategies. Now, you remember the big cities, especially ones like Samaria, which was the capital city of Israel, had a wall around it. It wasn't just a little wall. It was a great big wall. I mean, many, many feet high and many feet thick. It made the Berlin Wall look very, very small. I mean, very, very big walls. Now, this was very good uh, for protection, okay, that people would live inside these walls, and it was very secure that way. Uh, but it was very bad when it came to sieges. It, it really lent itself to that. So what would happen is, a, is an army would come in and they would surround this city and they would cut off all, uh, uh, all routes going into and out of the city. So whatever food was in the city, that's, what, that's just what they had to live on. Now the store shelves, you remember, you remember the ice storm fondly, I'm sure. You remember what it was like at Walmart, how the store shelves were empty, and it was just like that day after day after day? And it really aggravates me because uh, whenever it started icing that day after, after work, I actually went to Walmart, and, this, and the shelves were full. And I thought, maybe I should get some candles and stuff like that. And I thought, nah, we won't be out of power that long. And so I didn't get anything. And then, of course, we got all that ice, and the next day I went back, and there's, there's nothing. But you can imagine what it, was, what it would be like if all, all transportation into and out of a city was cut off, all the store shelves would be empty. And this is not something that would go on for a week or two like with our ice storm. I mean, some of these sieges lasted for years at a time. So you can imagine how desperate things would get in a situation like that. Now, the reason Samaria was under siege is because the Syrian king, or your Bible may say Aramean, the Aramean king, Ben-Hadad, in, earlier in chapter 6, he was making secret plans against Israel because Syria was Israel's enemy. And so they would make a secret plan, but God would tell Elisha what that plan was, and Elisha would tell the Israelite king what was going to happen. 
And so he kept frustrating Ben-Hadad's plans. And he got real, real mad. And so he made a secret plan. He's going to get Elisha. So he sent an army to surround Elisha's house. Now you remember that story where where uh, there's the army surround Elisha's house and, and Elisha's servant gets all worried and, he's, and Elisha says, Lord, please open his eyes so he can see that there's more with us than with them. You remember that? That's, that's the context. This happens right before our passage. And so in that, in, that, in that story, God actually strikes the Syrian army blind. Elisha leads them to Samaria. And then God restores their sight. So they're surrounded by the Israelites. The Israelite king doesn't have them put to death. Instead, he sends them back to Syria. And so that kind of buys them some goodwill with the king. And so they don't attack Israel for quite some time. But probably a couple years later, again, we don't know exactly how long, Ben-Hadad says, you know what, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to take over this nation. And that's where we pick up in verse 24. He's laid this siege against Samaria because he's decided he's really going to get them this time. Okay? It's kind of like a big front porch to a small house. So, there's the big front porch. Verse 24. Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cob of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. As the king was, of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. He said, If the lord does not uh, help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? In other words, uh, you're barking up the wrong tree. Verse 28, And the king said to her, What is the matter with you? And she answered, This woman said to me, give, give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. When the king, yeah, you didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. In other words, this was an outward sign of repentance, though. It's clear because later he blames Elisha for all this happening. He wasn't truly repentant. But anyway, verse 31. Then he said, May God do so do to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Saphat, remains on him today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man from his presence. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Because this is the son of Ahab. That's, that's who is reigning now. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? While he was still talking with them, behold, the messenger came down to him and said, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now, I just want to stop there. We're going to continue on just a little bit, but it's, it's kind of a long passage anyway, so we'll, we'll break it up into pieces. The first thing I want you to notice here is that the people were in a desperate plight. I mean, these people were in dire straits. And it's easy to see uh, if you look, by, look back at, at uh, verse 25 and following. It's easy to see how bad things were. First, it says that a donkey's head was selling for 80 pieces of silver. Now, I've been pretty hungry, but I've never been hungry enough to eat a donkey's head of you. And to pay I mean, 80 pieces of silver, this would have been about two pounds worth of silver. I mean, who in the right mind would pay two pounds worth of silver for an old donkey's head to eat. Somebody who's really hungry, that's who, that, that's who would do it, and somebody that had the means to do it. And, and so, so, so to put this in perspective, 
The head, of course, is the worst part of the body to eat. Okay, now some some people like to eat cow tongue and stuff like that, but they don't just eat the whole head. The, the head is the worst part to eat, and on top of that, the donkey, according to the Levitical law, the donkey was an unclean animal, so this should have been off limits to begin with. So here's the worst part of an unclean animal that's selling for two pounds of silver. Now, that would have bought you like caviar back then. Uh, it would have been the dainty, expensive, real good food. And so they're paying really high prices for the worst part of an unclean animal. And that's what the wealthy's doing. You can imagine what the poor people are doing at this point. Then it says that a fourth of a cob of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, that would have been probably about two ounces. A cob, according to the rabbis, weighed about the same as 24 eggs. So about six eggs worth of dove's dung was being sold for two ounces of silver. You say, that sounds pretty gross, dove's dung. Why would anybody be buying dove's dung? Well, obviously it's not to eat. Uh, commentators throughout the ages have, have come down on, in two different camps as to what this is talking about. One camp says that, that this is like the main on the street name for a certain kind of plant, uh, uh, peas actually, um, and it was it looked kind of like dove's dung. You say, well, that's kind of a weird name for peas, but if you think of some of the names that we have for some of our food, especially some of the mushrooms and stuff, it's not really that surprising. Also, some people say, no, this is really dove's dung, and and they wouldn't have eaten it, but what they would have done is they would have dried it and then used it for fire, kind of like the Plains Indians would do with buffalo dung. And so, of course, they wouldn't have any firewood because all you have is what's in the city at the time. So they couldn't cook anything, they couldn't heat their homes, anything like that. Either way, this was going for a very high price. It was a bad, bad situation. But what, what is it that sticks out the most that tells us how bad the situation was? The lady eating the kid, right? That's that's the thing that we all get hung up on. Now, we don't know any details about this. Maybe they killed this child and then ate him. Maybe, as some some rabbis and some of the other commentators said, this, this child had already starved to death and then they just took his dead body and ate it. We also don't know why this one woman hid her son. Maybe... He was still alive and her maternal instinct kicked in a little bit late. Maybe he had already died and some commentators think he had died and she hid him away so she could eat him herself all alone. We don't know any of the details. All we know is it was a bad situation going on in Samaria. As bad as this is, this is not the only time in history it's happened. Other times when, when seizures happen, people would eat their kids. They'd eat after birth. They would eat, um, history tells us people when, when Titus surrounded uh, Jerusalem, in 70 AD, they were eating animal and, and human feces. I mean, terrible, terrible situation. And so things were, were about as bad as they could get. And the question that comes to my mind when I read something like this is why? Why would God let something like this happen? You ever think about something like that? Why would God let something like this happen? Because these are supposed to be His people. Well, it happened to them as a judgment. God's judgment on his people resulted in this in this siege. He told them both in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy, if you turn your back on me, if you don't follow me, if you worship the gods of the Canaanites, if, uh, if you're hostile towards me, I'm going to be hostile towards you. In fact, listen to what he said in Deuteronomy 28.53. Speaking of, of them putting their faith in their, in their walled cities and stuff, he said, Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. I mean, he told them what was going to happen. 
So these people were experiencing the judgment of God because of their sin. They turned their back on Him. Now, I just want you to understand the picture here because we read stuff like this and we say, what kind of application does that have for 2013? How does that apply? Well, let's, let's, let's see it in, in a spiritual context because this really gives us a powerful picture if, if you think about it. Because these people had sinned. God told them their sin would bring judgment. And even though the nation of Israel had turned their back on God for many years, He hadn't brought judgment. That was mercy on His part. But these people were, were helpless when it came to changing their condition. They couldn't do anything about it. It was humanly impossible for things to get better. Apart from God, they were assured death. And that is a picture of the spiritual condition we find ourselves in. And this is the same thing I talked about last night at VBS. It's what the kids learned about. Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, he said, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And there are people today who say, Oh, well, you know, God will just let about anybody in. He'll, he'll let anything go by. He's a God of love. He is. But He's also a God of judgment. He will judge sin. And we can see here that that, that judgment is quite severe. Now look at chapter 7 in, in the first couple of verses. Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a measure of, of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. In other words, things are going to be going for dirt cheap. Lots of food, cheap price. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. Now in the midst of this terrible news and condition, God makes a wonderful promise through the prophet. He promised that there would be an abundant supply of what they needed. In other words, God was going to save them. Now I want you to notice something about the provision that God was making because He wasn't just saying, I'm going to give you just barely enough to scoop by. I'm going to give you just barely enough to, to, to make sure you stay alive. Your hunger's not going to be met, but but you're going to stay alive. You'll just get the bare nourishment. That's not what, what he said. He said there's going to be an abundance, a super abundance of supply. A lot of food is going to sell for very cheap. There's going to be a surplus when there had been a scarcity. Now, do you realize that God promises much the same, same thing to us in a spiritual way? In Romans 5.20, Paul says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, you can't out God's grace. You cannot out God's grace. There's no sin that you can commit that's going to make God love you less or that He can't forgive because Jesus paid for every sin on the cross. And where our sin abounded, His grace abounded all the more. There's a super abundant supply of grace. Now, the reason that this could be the case in, in our text today is because it was going to be a supernatural supply. It was not going to be a human supply. Now, I think that's why this officer had uh, such a hard time grasping it. He couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that God was going to save him in this way. And there are a lot of people in today's world who are the same way. They say, well, God, God's not going to save me by putting my faith in Christ. And they'll try everything humanly possible except the one thing that will save them. They'll try keeping the law. They'll try uh, giving money. They'll try uh, living a good life. They'll do everything that they can except put their faith in Christ. But as with this man, unbelief will cause you to miss out on God's provision. Now look down at verse 3. 
Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore, come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, we will but die. In other words, it's, it's a win-win situation. We're, we're dead on one hand if we die there. Uh, same difference. They arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. When they came out to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight, and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. When the lepers came out to the outskirts, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also, and they went and hid them. And I just want to pause there for a minute. What we see here is divine provision. Now in this case, God worked a miracle because this Syrian army, this Aramean army was surrounding Samaria, and God caused them to hear something. We don't know what exactly they heard, but they thought that it was an army coming to attack them. Now I don't know how they thought that the, uh, how the Israelite king could have hired somebody because nobody could go in or out of the city. But you ever, you ever got all worked up about something that didn't really make sense? when you look back on it. Well, that's what these guys were doing. They were getting all worked up and worried about something that didn't really make sense. And so God conquered His people's enemies. They ran. And in doing so, He met His people's needs. And again, the same thing is true of believers. God will meet our needs because our greatest need, of course, is to be reconciled with the Father. And that's something that only God can do. We can't do it ourselves. You can't, I can't, this church can't reconcile you to God. Only Christ can reconcile you to God. And he, he can do that because on the cross He died in your place and mine to take the wrath of God that your sin deserved and my sin deserved. The just for the unjust. And the Bible says that if we'll believe in Him, if we'll put our trust in Him, we can have eternal life. Now we had that need that only God can meet just like these guys did, and God did that. But just like these people in Samaria, if we don't partake of it, that's not going to do us any good. God can have the provision there, and if we don't partake, it'll do us no good. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience His goodness personally. But also this applies to us as Christians after we become followers of Christ. Philippians 4.9 says, that, uh, uh, it says, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, God's going to take care of you. Okay, so we, we've seen a desperate plight a declared promise, a divine provision. Finally, I want you to see one last thing, and that's uh, pick up in verse 7 with me. I want you to see deliverance proclaimed. Look at, uh, sorry, not verse 7, verse 9. The lepers are speaking. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, but we are keeping it silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go until the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Arameans, and behold, there is no one there, nor the voice of any man, uh, nor the voice of man, only the horses tied and the donkeys tied, and the tents just as they were. The gatekeepers called and told, uh, told it within the king's household. Then the king arose in the night and said to his servants, I will now tell you what the Arameans have done to us. 
They know that we're hungry, therefore they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out to this, uh, of the city, we'll capture them alive and get into the city. They're going to ambush us. One of his servants said, Please let some men take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they will be, in any case, like all the multitude of Israel who are left in, uh, left in it. Behold, they will be, in any case, like all the multitude of Israel who have already perished. So let us send and see. They took, therefore, two chariots with horses, and the king sent the army of the Arameans, saying, Go and see. They went after, the, after them to the Jordan, and behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. When the messengers returned and told the king, or then the messengers returned and told the king. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. Now this is the, the guy who didn't believe. But the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And you think the you see the guys, the, the people at Walmart on Black Friday, how they trample people. You see all of them rushing in. Just imagine what it would be like at this place. It happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. Now I want you to see the deliverance that's proclaimed. And first I want you to notice the messengers of this proclamation. Now the Bible says that these lepers went to the camp of the Arameans. Now you remember lepers, they, they were very contagious. They were kept outside away from, uh, from all the other people so they didn't infect people. And they decided, you know what, we've already got a death sentence on us because we're starving to death. If we go in, we're sunk. If we stay out here, we're sunk. If we go to the Arameans and they kill us, we're already dead anyhow. Maybe, maybe we'll have some good happen to us. So they go out there to the camp. Now, we don't know who these men were. The Bible doesn't give us their names. Some of the ancient rabbis used to say that they were Gehazi and his three sons. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not. We don't know. It doesn't really matter, but we do know this. They were outcasts. Now, I think it's interesting because in many ways, leprosy is an Old Testament picture of sin. Now, these men did not let their condition stop them from telling others about the provision the Lord had, had given they, as I said last night, they were dying men telling dying men. And they're an example to us because oftentimes, and listen, oftentimes we as Christians get sidetracked by our sin, don't we? We're like these lepers. And if it were us there, and to put it in a spiritual context, we might say, oh, well, I just don't have my life straightened out. I can't talk to people about the Lord. They'll say, but what about this in your life? What about that? And we get so sidetracked and, and, we, and we think that we can't tell people about Jesus because we're not perfect. We don't have all the answers. Sometimes we think, well, you know, this week I've really hosed up. I've told that joke. I've, I've lost my temper. I've done whatever it is. I, so I can't tell people about Jesus. I can't, I can't invite them to church this week. Maybe in a couple of weeks after maybe people have forgotten and I talk a little bit nicer and I'm doing better, then maybe I can invite them to church. Then maybe I can tell them about the Lord. But listen, you're never going to be perfect. So don't, don't let that be a requirement. A hungry person wants to know where to get food, even if you're a leper. And that's what you're doing when you're telling people about the Lord. 
Now, I just want to make an observation uh, related to this this business of trying to live the perfect life because I don't know how many times all my life I've heard people say, I want to live such a life that when people see it, they want to get saved. You ever said something like that? You ever heard that? And that's a great idea. It's a, it's a high aspiration. But can I tell you something? I've never met a person... I've never heard in all my life in church, I've never heard somebody say, stand up and say, I watched this person and I was so impressed by their life, I was under conviction I wanted to get saved. Never. Now it's good that you want to live a really good life. But listen, people are not saved by your life. They're saved by His death. And the only way that people are going to know about His death is not by seeing you, not, not hearing you tell a dirty joke. The way people are going to hear about His death is if you tell them about His death. So don't let your imperfections keep you from doing that. Now the last thing that, that I notice in this passage is the message itself. This is good news that's so good they couldn't keep it to themselves. Look at verse 9. They said to one another, We're not doing right. This is a day of good news, but we are keeping it silent. One of the games the kids, some of the kids played at, at recreation at Bible school required them they were walking around and you may have seen in that video they were all walking around they weren't saying anything they were supposed to be keeping a secret but I watched those kids and they didn't do a very good job keeping the secret and they couldn't keep it on the down low they always let it slip and I watched that and something stuck out to me here are these kids who had a secret and they couldn't keep it and we have news we're supposed to share and what do we do we keep it a secret there's something wrong with that and listen, I'm not perfect. I don't say as much stuff as I should. But it strikes me that these men had good news concerning bread. We have the good news concerning the bread of life. They couldn't keep it to themselves. And if it was wrong for them to keep it to themselves, how much more wrong is our silence today? Now, I just want to take a moment because at this point you're probably feeling like, yeah, I could do a lot better. Yeah, there's that person. Boy, I should have said something the other day at work. I should, you know. I just want to take a moment to brag on you guys. I just want, I just want to, I just want to brag on you a little bit because you guys did this. We did this at Bible school this past week. We told the kids about Jesus. You all showed them that you loved them. You showed them that God loved them. You told them about that. You taught that. You reinforce the gospel message. You pray that their, their hearts would be open, that, that the seed would be sown, and that happened. And I, you know, I've been here for almost nine years, and any pastor, if, they're, if you're good friends with them, and they'll tell you the truth, they'll tell you there's a lot of highs and a lot of lows in ministry. And there are times whenever you're real happy with your church, and times when you're not happy with your church. But this week, I was, I was very, very happy with my church. I, it, it really warmed my heart to see this. I mean, it was, a, it was a whole church effort. We even had people coming in from other churches to help out. And that was fantastic. And you know what? Doing things like that, that fulfills this command of Christ to go and make disciples. It fulfills this command to tell people about the Lord. But I want to tell you, VBS, that's probably our biggest outreach of the year here. 
That's not the only way that we can tell people about the Lord. We can do it as a church, but we as individuals have that command to tell people. Not just in a big event, but, but one-on-one. And I'm not saying you have to go and, and do a, a cold call, so to speak, and knock on a door and say, you know, and to give a big gospel presentation. I mean, just at work. Brag about Jesus. In your home. At, if anybody listens to 88.3, you probably heard about the drive through difference. There are all kinds of ways that you can, that you can share the love of God. That's what we're called to do. And, and these men had a good message to share. We have a lot better message to share. We need to be sharing it. Now, you may have noticed right at the end of our passage, it seemed like he was kind of repeating himself. And the author was doing that for emphasis. And, and the point that he makes is twofold. God is faithful to His promise of deliverance. And unbelief can keep you from that provision. He said that, that God fulfilled His promise and the guy who didn't believe, who scoffed at the idea, he didn't take part in it. He saw, but he didn't take part. Now again, this has spiritual application. God has provided for us. He's provided Jesus Christ. But just because Jesus died for you, you may see it, you may hear it, you may come to church, that doesn't make you a Christian. You may have a believing spouse, a believing uh, a parent, a believing child, and that does not make you a Christian. You've got to put your faith in Him. You must believe. God has no grandchildren. You have to be His child yourself. And the time to do that is now.